Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 198 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And as we're now only two weeks away from our 200th episode, excitement is building here at GDPR Weekly Show Towers as we have an exciting competition for you coming up in just two weeks' time. So do make sure you carry on listening and do, of course, take part in that competition when we get to episode 200. So coming up in this week's episode, we have news that Intuit has issued its fifth phishing advisory notice this year for QuickBooks. We then also have news that Zoom has released an important security patch to prevent the potential hijacking of personal data. We then here in the UK look at a petition that's been launched against the new proposed UK data reform bill. We then travel to New York in the USA where New York schools have been told to stop using Illuminate products after a data breach. Remaining in the USA, we then travel to Indianapolis where Martin University has had a data breach. We then return to the UK where Suella Braveman, the UK Attorney General, has said that the UK can lawfully launch cyber attacks to counter hostile states, with obvious references to the current war between Russia and Ukraine. We then travel to Australia, where Spirit Super Pension Fund has had a data breach. And we then return to New York City, where Capsule Pharmacy has had a data breach. We then travel to India, and we now have more detail on the new Indian privacy laws. And we then return to the UK, and we look at how should a data controller confirm that their data processes are GDPR compliant. And then finally this week, we look at GDPR and its effect upon African privacy laws. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. Intuit has warned of a new phishing campaign specifically targeting the users of QuickBooks. The latest phishing campaign, which is the fifth major security threat that Intuit has issued warnings for this year, involves tricking users into thinking their account has been suspended. In the example email received by a customer, shared by Intuit, the phishing campaign lacks some sophistication in that the sender's web domain does not appear related to either Intuit or the QuickBooks brands. In more recent sophisticated scams, hackers have been able to send emails to an organisation employees directly off the back of existing email chains to increase the level of deception and perceived authenticity. The latest email campaign does adopt QuickBooks branding in the email body and unlike the more common phishing scams, the language used is convincing and professional in tone. The email reads, Dear customer, we are writing to let you know that after conducting a review of your business, we've been unable to verify some information on your account. For that reason, we have put temporary hold on your account. What you can do? If you believe that we've made a mistake, we'd like to remedy the situation as quickly as possible. To help us effectively revisit your account, please complete the below verification form, and it then contains a green button saying complete verification. Under that, it then says, once verification has been completed, we will review your account within 24 to 48 hours. We're sorry we can no longer offer our services to you, and we wish you the best of luck with your business. Now, of course, when people click on the green complete verification button, they don't get taken to Intuit's website, they get taken to the phishing website instead. It's believed that this particular phishing attack is attempting to distribute malware, which could be used for any number of purposes, including information theft, ransomware, or business email compromise attacks. In an announcement, Intuit said, Intuit has recently received reports to customers that they have received suspicious emails. This email does not come from Intuit. The sender is not associated with Intuit, is not an authorised agent of Intuit, nor is there a use of Intuit's brands authorised by Intuit. 
Cryptbooks users are advised to delete anything that's been downloaded from email immediately and run a system-wide scan using up-to-date antivirus application. If the link was clicked, users should also consider changing their passwords, Intuit said. Intuit Cryptbooks software is widely used by small and medium businesses across the world. The company's website claims it only has 4.5 million users across the globe. The largest user base has been a target for cyber attackers this year, especially around the US tax season, when the company was forced to issue two separate security advisories in as many days back in February. The other two Intuit scams this year occurred in April, as customers reported fake emails relating to their software subscription. Intuit issued two separate advisories for the campaigns that appeared to be linked, given the same fake email domains from which the payment receipt and payment invoices were sent. If we receive any more updates on this from Intuit, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Since the pandemic, Zoom has become an increasingly popular video conferencing tool. And this week, Zoom has released a security patch to address a vulnerability affecting Windows, Mac OS, iOS and Android users. A Google Project Zero security researcher discovered the vulnerability, which can give cyber criminals the ability to compromise a victim's account through Zoom's chat functionality without any user interaction. Should a cyber criminal exploit this flaw, they could force the targeted device to connect to malicious servers, known as a man-in-the-middle attack, which would allow them to send spoofed or controlled malicious messages. Zoom advises anyone who uses Zoom on a Windows, Mac OS, iOS or Android device to download the update as soon as possible, to ensure they are running version 5.10.0 or later. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll remember that back in episode 195, we mentioned about the data reform bill, which was mentioned in the Queen's speech, and which we understand the UK government is due to bring forward within the next couple of months. Well, various GDPR practitioners, and we ourselves, it has to be said, have signed up to this petition, have started a petition to Parliament to not reform the UK data protection laws. The group say, we want the government to abandon plans to reform the UK's data protection regime. We believe plans to reduce burdens on businesses are incompatible with protecting individuals' rights and could make it easier for people's data to be misused. Moving the UK's data protection regime out of alignment with the EU could also create additional trust for businesses that operate internationally, and some businesses may even choose to relocate as a result. It is possible reforms could mean that the EU no longer deems the UK's data protection regime as adequate, which would make it more difficult for UK businesses operating in the EU, and indeed would lead to lots of additional legal costs to renegotiate contracts and add additional clauses to contracts. So for those reasons, we, as part of the group, believe that the reform of UK data protection laws in GDPR in the UK is wrong at the present time, and so we have started this petition. We would invite you to sign the petition. You can find the petition at https colon slash slash petition dot parliament dot uk forward slash petitions forward slash six one seven zero six one. That's petition dot parliament dot uk forward slash petitions slash six one seven zero six one. Thank you for your support. Back in episode 194, we brought you news about the Illuminate data breach. Well, this week, the New York City Department of Education is calling it quits with Illuminate, whose data breach has impacted at least 820,000 public school students. School principals were told on Tuesday to cease using any Illuminate education products and services at the end of this school year. 
The third-party vendor, which offers popular grades, attendance and messaging platforms, is widely used by schools across the five boroughs. First Deputy Chancellor Dan Weisberg told administrators the Department of Education had been investigating and gathering more information to understand how the incident happened and whether we can continue to use Illuminate's products and services. Education officials made the final call to cease using the products based on that investigation, they said. We do not take this step lightly because we understand that this is going to create some disruption and challenge for some schools and families, Vinesburg wrote. And I want to be clear, the Department of Education made this decision after an extensive investigation and deliberation and based on our deep commitment to protecting the privacy of our families and students. News of a possible privacy breach first broke when three Illuminate products widely used in New York City public schools, Scheduler, Pupil Path and IO Classroom, went dark in January. The public was first made aware of the massive data breach in March, when education sources said schools could continue using company services until the end of the year before re-evaluating its contracts going forward. Hackers were able to gain access to students' names, birthdays and ethnicities, as well as their English learner, disability and free lunch statuses, sources said at the time. Approximately 2 million New York State students have been impacted by the incident as of early May, according to state data, including students at charter schools. This spring, the Department of Education introduced its own alternative to the Illuminate products and told school leaders it could develop a list of approved vendors with the job of having those available by early summer. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. Remaining in the USA and travelling to Indianapolis now, and Martin University is the victim of a recent ransomware attack. The university says it learnt of suspicious activity in January and immediately hired security experts and a computer forensic investigator to analyse the system and determine if personal information was compromised. Our investigation revealed that this network incident may have impacted the personal information of some current, former and prospective students, said President Dr Sean Hodderston. The university learned that the attackers may have gained access to some of its students' personal information, although there has been no evidence to suggest that any student information was viewed or misused by the attackers. Despite the breach, the university says courses and instructions were not disrupted and students have been able to continue to attend classes virtually. We take the privacy and security of all individuals' personal information very seriously, said Huddleston. When we became aware of a suspicious activity on our computer network, we immediately took steps to investigate the activity and began the process to enhance the security of our system. Our efforts allowed us to rebound faster than expected, although the recovery process is still ongoing. Our internal team and outside cybersecurity experts have been hard at work and will continue until all recovery efforts have been completed. The university says it's been working to contact those affected and has been offering credit monitoring and identity remediation services. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Turning now to the war in Ukraine and the UK can legally carry out cyber offensive actions to counter unlawful activity by hostile states, according to Attorney General Sir Braverman. Braverman's decree came during a speech at the Chatham House Foreign Affairs think tank where she outlined the UK's government's stance on applying international law in cyberspace and the right of a country to take cyber active countermeasures where necessary. Braverman said that international law must be shaped into cyber context. And if it's not, the effects are likely to be felt in more often and disruptive ways. Cyber activity is now part of how some disputes or tensions between countries play out. Events over the last 10 years have demonstrated the vulnerability of critical sectors to disruptive state cyber activity, she stated. Ongoing physical and cyber conflict by Russia in Ukraine has demonstrated disregard for established international rules, 
whilst the United Global Response in the support of Ukraine has shown the value of having a framework that makes clear when state action is unlawful. Cyber is very much part of this conflict, Bobman added. Cyberspace is not a lawless grey zone and international law governs and plays a fundamental role in regulating it, she continued. In the same way, a country can lawfully respond when attacked militarily, there's also a basis to respond and options available in the face of hostile cyber operations in peacetime. Braverman went on to say the UK's national cyber security strategy priorities include promoting a free, open, peaceful and secure cyberspace and international leadership and partners will be essential in shaping and strengthening international cyber governance frameworks to deliver those objectives. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Australia now, an phishing attack at Australian pension provider Spirit Super has resulted in some personal details being compromised. The Super Fund confirmed that the user data was breached on May 19, 2022 after an employee's email account was accessed. An investigation into the incident found that it was unauthorised access to a mailbox containing personal data that includes name and other sensitive information. Spirit Super said approximately 50,000 individuals were affected. Spirit Super manages $26 billion worth of funds on behalf of 325,000 members across Australia. A press release from the Tasmanian-based company says the personal data that may have been compromised is similar to some information provided in an annual statement, including names, addresses, ages as at 2019 and 2020, email addresses, telephone numbers, member account numbers and member balances as at 2019 and 2020. It is important to note that this data does not include dates of birth, government identification numbers such as tax file numbers or driver's license details or any bank account details. Spirit Super said it does not believe the attack was targeted, rather it was caught up in a widespread phishing campaign. The fund detailed, in short, it was human error during a malicious email attack posing as official correspondence. This was not the result of material security control weakness or technology failure. The malicious email resulted in a staff member's password being compromised. The victim's mailbox was compromised despite the deployment of multi-factor authentication, said Spirit Super. We have a skilled internal team focused on cybersecurity and protecting your information, it said. This team detected the compromised account and acted quickly to contain and limit the impact of the breach. No further accounts or systems were impacted. Spirit Super said it's undertaking a thorough investigation to assess the impact of the incident including reviewing account activity and placing enhanced controls on accounts. Relevant authorities have been notified, including the Privacy Commissioner, and Spirit Super said it is taking immediate precautions to further strengthen our IT security and reduce further risks of cyber incidents. Anyone affected by the breach has been notified, Spirit Super said. Users who have not received correspondence are not believed to have been impacted. We have no evidence to suggest your information and the border set of member data has been intentionally accessed, Spirit Super concluded. All we know is that the email account was compromised, and within that mailbox, this data was available. The attacker may not be aware of the data set. Because of this, we recommend limiting any activity that might draw attention to your details being included in the data set, such as posting on social media. If we get any update from Spirit Super, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Witchy Show. Returning to New York now, and Capsule Corporation, which most people know as Capsule, recently filed notice with the federal government confirming that the company has experienced a hacking and IT incident. While details about the breach are still forthcoming, the company confirmed that the personal data of as many as 27,486 consumers was leaked. On May 27, 2022, Capsule began sending data breach notifications to all affected parties, informing them of the incident and explaining what they can do to protect themselves in its aftermath. Capsule is a digital pharmacy that allows patients to place orders on their phones. 
Capsule pharmacists then delivered the patient's medication directly to their door. Founded in 2015, Capsule has expanded beyond New York City to more than a dozen other US markets, including Chicago, Austin, Los Angeles and Minneapolis. Capsule employs approximately 800 people and brings in roughly $168 million in annual revenue. When we receive an update from Capsule, we will transmit to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. In episodes 194 and 195, we brought you news about new data privacy laws in India. And we thought we'd cover that a bit deeper in this episode. So let's look at a few facts about the new data protection laws in India. Firstly, when will the new Indian data privacy laws come into force? The new draft laws are expected to be placed before the Indian Parliament soon. Given the criticality of this legislation, it should enjoy quick passage before both houses of Parliament. This law, like all Indian laws, will come into force after parliamentary approval when it receives the Indian President's assent and is published in the Indian Government's official gazette. Based as it is upon GDPR, the final form of the Indian Data Privacy Law will provide a grace period for implementation. The Parliamentary Committee suggested a period of 24 months or two years from publication. By way of illustration, if the final law is notified in June 2022, it may be enforced or enforced in stages until June 2024. While this might seem like a long period of time, believe me, our experience in the UK is that it isn't, that two years will go in a heartbeat. So if you are in Indian business, then you need to start preparing for the new laws now. So who and what does this law apply to? Well, there's two useful definitions to start with here, data fiduciaries and data processors. Data fiduciary is the equivalent to the data controller in GDPR. Data processor has much the same meaning as it does in GDPR. Turning then to the type of data that's regulated, the law is intended to regulate the processing of personal data, sensitive personal data, and non-personal data as well. A part of this regulatory matrix is still unclear since the Indian government has been given the power to determine what is sensitive personal data, and more importantly, what is critical data. The law is intended to apply to any processing of personal data that is collected, stored, disclosed, shared, or otherwise processed within the territory of India. This is a very wide definition. One issue that crops up immediately is that of the law of unintended consequences. Will this new law, for instance, apply to EU data subjects data that's only stored in India by an IT service provider? We don't know yet because the legislation has not yet been finally published, so we'll update you on that as soon as we are aware of the final drafting of the words. And then in terms of extraterritorial scope, well, the new law has been given extraterritorial scope in that it applies to data fiduciaries or data controllers not present within the territory of India if their processing is in connection with business carried out in India or any systematic activity in India, including profiling your data subjects in India. This means that merely outsourcing any data processing activity outside of India will not impact the applicability of the new law. So what will you need to do to comply with the new law? Well, first thing is give notice. Data controllers will be required to give notice to data principles at data subjects before collecting their data, and the contents of this notice are prescribed. The very first thing then for a data controller to do is to provide notice before data collection, or as soon as practical, if data is not sourced from the data subject directly. Like GDPR, there's a major focus on consent, and the basis and cornerstone of data processing in the new law is consent of the data subject. This consent has to be free, informed, specific and clear, each of which items has been elaborated in the draft law. The exception to having to obtain consent 
is where the statute prescribed reasonable purpose involved, for example, employer-employee interactions. The third thing is that you'll only be able to retain the data if required. Again, this is very similar to GDPR. Data controllers do not retain personal data beyond the necessary purpose for which it was processed and it should be deleted at the end of such period. The personal data can be retained for longer only with explicit consent of the data subject or if required to comply with any applicable law. Interestingly, because this is based on GDPR as it is now, it's able to include things from the age-appropriate design code or the children's code, which of course came into effect with GDPR on the 2nd of September 2021. In the Indian law, there are special protections for children. This is a sensitive area and a potential compliance minefield that, given that any breach will have disproportionate negative effects. Processing children's data has to be negotiated carefully, as the draft law is sometimes unclear. For instance, a data controller is required to verify the age of a child and take parental consent before processing such child's data. Now think about that for a moment. You can't process their data to you know how old they are, but how old they are is part of their personal data. So again, this is one area where the bill does require clarification, and doubtless that will come as it passes through the Indian Parliament. As might be expected, harmful profiling, tracking, targeting or advertising to children is prohibited. Similar to GDPR, a number of discrete rights have been provided to each data subject. These include the right to confirmation and access to personal data, the right to correction and erasure, the right to portability and the right to object to processing. A number of such rights were not contemplated in the previous 2011 iteration of Indian privacy laws and will need to be thought through when it comes to actual implementation. And then what about exporting data outside of India? There's a graded approach to transfer personal data in the new law. Sensitive personal data can be transferred outside India, subject to contractual safeguards, but a copy is required to be stored within India as well. But critical data, and remember it's not yet been defined what critical data actually is, but critical data can only be processed within India. The new law also imposes reporting and approval obligations in certain cases of data export. So, how are businesses expected to comply with this new law? Well, firstly, and again, this has real rings of GDPR about it, prepare a privacy by design policy. Every data controller is required to frame this policy, comprising managerial, organisational, business practice and technical systems to identify and avoid harm to data subjects, and also balancing the obligations and legitimate business interests of the data subject with the interests of the data controller. From prior experience of similar policies under GDPR, this would be a bespoke exercise for every organisation involving thinking through historical and future data practices and how they fit within this new legal framework. There's also a requirement to implement security safeguards. Data controllers and data processors alike are required to implement security measures to protect data, including measures such as encryption. While no security standards have been prescribed so far, the intent is that these should be adequate, having regard to the likelihood and severity of harm that may result from such processing activities. As we've said before, the new Indian law does include stringent rules on reporting data breaches, and we'll cover those in more detail in a future episode of the GDPR Week Show. In terms of engaging data processors, data controllers can only appoint data processors pursuant to a contract, and such data processors are required to process data only as per the instructions of the data controller. Data processors cannot further subcontract without the prior approval of the data controller. Again, all very similar to GDPR. But there are additional compliances for significant data controllers. Social media platforms and or certain other data controllers are designated as significant based on the volume of data they process or the sensitivity of such data. For example, do they handle children's data? 
and the risk of potential harm. Firstly, these entities are required to undertake additional compliances, including performing data protection impact assessments when using new technologies or processing sensitive personal data such as genetic data. The contents of such impact assessments have been prescribed broadly. Secondly, significant data controllers are also required to maintain records in the prescribed form, including details of data protection impact assessments undertaken. And thirdly, the policies and processing conduct of such entities is also to be audited annually by an independent data auditor. This is akin to independent financial auditors auditing the books of accounts of limited liability companies under company law. The data auditor in this case would review and confirm matters such as statutory notices, security safeguards, etc. Finally, every significant data controller is required to appoint a data protection officer. Such officer has to be a direct employee of the data controller who is a key managerial person as prescribed. Qualifications for a data protection officer have yet to be prescribed, but their role would include monitoring data processing activities, record keeping, grievance redressal, etc. Talking of grievances, Every data controller is required to put in place procedures to handle data subjects' grievances. Complaints to be made to a DPO in case of significant data controllers and in each other case to officers designated for the purpose. Complaints are to be resolved in 30 days of the receipt, failing which a complaint to the data protection authority may be filed. And then in terms of penalties for non-compliance, data controllers could face penalties of 2% of their worldwide turnover, in the case of a non-compliance, or in case of serious offences, this penalty may go up to 4% of worldwide turnover. The re-identification of de-identified personal data without the data subject's consent is punishable with imprisonment and or fines. Additionally, a data subject is also entitled to seek compensation in the case of any non-compliance. So you will see that there's a lot of similarities between GDPR and the new proposed Indian Privacy Law, but there are also some substantial differences too. We will have regular updates on the new Indian privacy law as it passes through the Indian Parliament. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We've mentioned in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show about the increasing reliance of data protection authorities on data controllers to check the GDPR compliance of their data processors. So what does this mean in practice? Well, it means that during negotiations, data controllers should consider seeking some of the following provisions. Obligations on the data processors to update and review their technical and organisational security measures. The right on the part of the controller to object and vet the appointment of potential sub-processors. The right on the part of the controller to control the audit procedure and, if applicable, perform it themselves on-site or through a trusted external party rather than relying on reports provided by the processor. The audits should be performed preferably at regular intervals and the party's liability for costs should be documented. The obligation on processors on request and not just at termination to delete, destroy or put personal data beyond use. The obligations on processors to notify the data controller of personal data breaches within a specified time scale, for example 24 hours, and in any event without undue delay, and to cooperate in respect of investigating and resolving the breach before reporting it to the supervisory authority and including the indemnity protection for the data controller in respect to the processor's breach of data protection laws. So how practically, though, as a data controller, can you check that your data processor is GDPR compliant? Well, the first step probably is a due diligence questionnaire. If your data processor is also your supplier or vendor, use these questionnaires may be helpful at the outset of the relationship as well as throughout. 
question illustrated contains specific technical questions relating to the process of IT and data security environment and confidentiality offering. This should therefore help the data controller understand the process's technical security measures, their underpinning documentation such as records of processing, data protection policies and data protection impact assessments, whether they have a data protection officer, DPO, or who else is the relevant contact person and the personnel involved in the proposed processing activities and the history of any breaches or security incidents at the data processor. In addition, the processor's answers to the other more general questionnaire topics such as financial, corporate social responsibility and commercial should also help controllers paint a better picture of the organisation who will be potentially processing personal data. It's recommended that these questionnaires are completed on an annual basis. So what about IT security certifications? Certifications such as ISO 27001 will help organisations demonstrate that they are formally satisfied stringent objectives and requirements in respect of IT security. Organisations are required to recertify on a yearly basis, which will therefore push organisations to maintain ongoing high IT security standards and risk mitigation practices. Data controllers may choose processes who hold such certifications where it's deemed necessary to do so. In terms of auditing, well, the controllers should actively conduct audits and inspection of their processes throughout the entire life cycle of the business arrangement. The agreed procedure for this, such as the frequency, access, documentation, personnel, etc., should be clearly documented in the Article 28 data processing terms as set out. Therefore, it is important for data controllers to choose processes who are willing to cooperate in respect of auditing. And there should also be regular contract reviews and updates to contracts in place with processes, including the Article 28 compliant data processing terms and any underpinning commercial contracts, should be reviewed and updated regularly if necessary. This will be important because the nature, flow and use of the data processed by the parties may change over time. Therefore, readily reviewing and updating these agreements will, among other things, ensure the parties pick up any new legal or regulatory changes or wider legal trends which may assist the parties' data processing security obligations and also reflect and document any external commercial or operational changes of the parties which may affect their data processing and security obligations such as proposed service level changes, new internal systems, new overseas facilities or sub-processors where the personal data may need to be transferred. If you need any help with any of these, please do contact us on the contact details which are coming up right now and we'll be very pleased to help you get these procedures in place. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com And finally this week, we thought we'd take a brief look at how GDPR is affecting data protection law in Africa. So starting with Ghana, Ghana's Data Protection Act was passed in 2012 ahead of the adoption of GDPR, so it does not expressly follow GDPR framework. However, the Act regulates the collection and processing of personal data through similar principles as those provided in GDPR. Moving then to Kenya, Kenya's Data Protection Act 2019 also corresponds to those of GDPR, although it's not totally identical. If we move into South Africa, well, South Africa is recognised as being an adequate country as far as GDPR in both EU GDPR and UK GDPR is concerned. If we travel to Morocco, then the current data privacy law in Morocco follows the definitive framework of the EU Directive N9546, which prevailed in Europe before GDPR was passed. In Rwanda, the law 058 of 2021 and 13-10-2021 Relating to the protection of personal data and privacy of the draft regulation governing use of personal data follows the same framework as GDPR. We travel then to Uganda. 
The privacy law in Uganda is also partially based on GDPR. Uganda's State Protection and Privacy Act 2019 aims to protect the privacy of the individual and of personal data and is in some limited respects inspired by GDPR. The Act also mirrors the UK Data Protection Act 1998. One of the main contrasts of Ugandan privacy law with GDPR is the absence of legitimate interest as a legal basis for processing in Uganda. Turning to Mauritius, their Data Privacy Act 2017 is aligned with international standards, namely GDPR and the Convention for Protection of Individuals with Regard to Automatic Processing of Personal Data. However, the administrative penalty regime is not the same. The Bill and Cross in Nigeria, Nigeria says that the Nigerian Data Protection Regulation, NDPR 2019, is significantly modelled on GDPR, noting that both laws are reasonably similar in terms of rationale and core principles. And so, as we've often mentioned here on the GDPR Weekly Show, you will see that worldwide now, GDPR really is becoming the platinum standard on which other data protection regulations are becoming based. And that's got to be a good thing because the sooner we can bring more countries across the globe in line, the simpler data protection becomes for all of us, and ultimately, the safer everyone's data should become. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week, or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is a insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should be not be taken as specific legal advice. You should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye-bye.